Hello and welcome to the PD Performance Podcast. Today's episode of the podcast is with Andy Ryland. Andy is a coach educator. He is a former US Eagle rugby player. He also has played American football at the highest level in collegiate athletics with Penn State. He has been a coach in Division One college athletics in terms of strength and conditioning, and he is now working for USA Football. Andy is really, really passionate about coaching contact skills and contact prep for both rugby union and for American football. We had a great discussion around the coaching of the tackle area within rugby union, common misconceptions around how we should tackle common misconceptions around how we should coach the tackle, especially in youth athletes. We talked about devising drills and moving from a closed to an open environment and how we should progress our athletes through extensive tackle prep to full contact tackling in rugby. We also talked about youth participation and what is missing from the curriculum for youth athletes at the moment. We talked about implementation of specific rules in the pre-season in rugby union. And we had a bit of a chat around Andy's favorite rugby players to watch at the moment. This one was a really enjoyable one to chat all about tackle technique, all about coaching in terms of rugby, which is something that I really miss. Andy is a great practitioner, a great guy, and I wish him all the best in the future with USA Football. I hope you all enjoy this, and as always, if you do enjoy it, please remember to like it, share it, and send it. Season 2 of the PD Performance Podcast is kindly sponsored by Output Sports. Output Sports make athlete testing and monitoring simple, portable, and efficient. Their single sensor tool enables the measurement of over 160 exercises spanning agility, speed, power, mobility, reactive strength, and much more. The tech is utilized by the FA, Leinster Rugby, Limerick Curling, and your very own PD Performance, to name but a few, but also gyms, clinics, and schools around the UK and Ireland, and they're now branching out into the States as well. As a listener of this podcast, you can get 5% off with the code PT5, P-E-T-E-Y 5. So get onto Output Sports as soon as you possibly can, because I am achieving great things with my sensor that I've been using so far this season. I've had great buy-in with my athletes and I've been using that myself too. And I gotta say, it's a lot of fun. So contact Output Sports with code PT5 to avail of your discount. This podcast is also sponsored by Coach Sam Portland's Mentorship Program. Sam's Mentorship Program helps strength and conditioning coaches to navigate the minefield that is the SNC industry at the moment. Sam is big on education and you'll certainly learn a lot about speed, change of direction and general SNC over the course of the program, but there's also a big emphasis placed on personal development as well. Something that's definitely missed in the traditional education system, especially in SNC. You'll learn about business, self-care, and much, much more. And look, the proof is in the pudding. I entered the program over a year ago as a burnt-out coach that was sick of the industry and struggling with confidence. And now I have a podcast and my own private training business. So I'd highly recommend getting in touch with Sam. And if you are interested, simply contact him 
over on Instagram or Facebook using the code PERFORMANCE to avail of a discount. You can find him at Coach Sportland if you're looking for him on Instagram or Facebook. And if you want him via email, it's sam at coachsportland.co.uk. Remember, code PERFORMANCE and you'll get a nice little discount. Now, on to the podcast. Mr. Andy Ryland, welcome to the PD Performance Podcast and a happy Independence Day as well to you. Yeah, appreciate it. Uh, obviously, the uh, July 4th here, so I have a day off, had an open schedule and, and awesome to be able to jump on. It's actually, as well as being Independence Day in the States, more importantly, it's my dad's birthday today. So I'll give him a bit of a shout out there. Born on, literally born on the 4th of July. He's not a big Bruce Springsteen fan, but I don't know why, given that he's born on the 4th of July. Um, so what's up with, with you today or what's the plan for the week? It's obviously a public holiday in the States, but will you be back into work resuming as normal from tomorrow? Yeah, so we just have the day off. Give us a little three day weekend uh a little little family barbecue the neighbors uh who have uh some kids and i have kids and they kind of play in the backyard and this now we'll just uh, uh kind of pool some resources go in the backyard where they all join uh eat some food relax watch some fireworks uh nothing major but but well relaxing deadly so would you mind explaining to our listeners your current role? And you're clearly very passionate about what you do. So I'm going to also ask you what makes you so passionate about what you do and why are you so passionate about it? Yeah, so uh, by title, I am Senior Manager of Education and Training at USA Football. Uh, we are the sports national governing body for uh, youth and amateur uh, participation here in the, the state. So like, you know, all of our sports here, there is a, a national governing body. We're not as popular as obviously the NGBs for the Olympic sports, um, you know, with football not being an Olympic sport and with the popularity of college and NFL football, we, you know, most of the uh, uh, passion and eyes and knowledge go to those those sports. And uh, something that is normally pretty interesting, at least in my travels going overseas, is that our profession on our college collegiate leagues here in the States are independent of the NGBs. So like NCAA basketball or the NBA, uh, you know, they have partnerships and they work together on growth programs with USA basketball, but there's not any direct oversight or any direct linkage uh, like we would have maybe with the RFU or something of that nature. So they're very independent. Uh, we work mostly in the youth and high school space. Like I said, that kind of true youth and amateur development aspect. We are the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Committee's recognized uh, NGB so that if we were to get to the Olympics, we would be the provider of said national team. So we operate in this unique space where we're kind of working back and forth between, you know, professional leagues, you know, working with colleges and high schools, looking at what are the issues, uh, working with the USOPC on initiatives for growth and long-term athlete development and all that kind of uh, good stuff. And as we mentioned, my role is education and training. Uh, so uh, I turned into a coach developer by trade now. Originally, I was a, uh, a coach uh, myself. And then we work our uh, curriculum and our curriculum delivery. So uh, my great colleagues in my department and myself, you know, we'll look at 
Uh, what sort of curriculum do we need to maybe update and address? Uh, what new things are on the horizon that we need to be aware of or we might want to add to coaching curriculums and provide for coaches? We'll kind of find subject matter experts. If it's not you know, in our wheelhouse, we'll create a curriculum, we'll create uh, a platform. So whether that's going to be maybe an online module, maybe it's going to be an in-person event, maybe it's just going to be some PDF resources and, you know, a little kind of seven page uh, pamphlet or booklet. Uh, we'll create that and then deliver it. And I serve as our lead clinician, which sounds incredibly ridiculously boastful, but it's just kind of my job. Uh, so I travel a lot and will present a lot of our in-person uh, training events. And then I have responsibilities for training our coach educators so that obviously we can uh, have a larger spread and cover the country. I would imagine that there are many positives to being in that partnership with the number of high schools, colleges, et cetera, that you will work with, because given that you're not overseeing everything as a governing body, everybody that comes to you for education and training, they are literally coming to you willing to learn and wanting to learn. So you don't really need to go in and kind of convince them into their into your argument or into your um, or, or try and put your perspectives on them because they're already basically in business. You'd call them a hot lead, I would say. They're coming to you and they're like, what should I be doing? How can we improve our process? Yeah, so some yes. And then on the on the real boots on the ground level, a little bit. No. So okay. Uh, we are an opt-in, opt-in kind of situa program uh, where there's no mandates and we don't run any championships or any competitions. So like you don't have to be USA football certified to compete anywhere. Mm -hmm. What happens is leagues, organizations, school districts, you know, however it's broken up, somebody will say, we're going to, we want to use USA football's coach education on this topic, or, you know, our level one base cert, or we want to do one of these advanced things. And so those people are highly motivated, right? A lot of them have done their homework. They've, you know, tried to pick us. They, they, they think we have good stuff. They really want to use it. So when you, when you get to the administrative level, um, they're all in, they've done their research. They've decided that they want their coaches and the people under their charge to go through this, this program. Most of now the boots on the ground coaches will be, you know, very receptive and very into it. Uh, but there are some coaches like every sport, right? Like every situation, mm -hmm. uh, where they go, I'm just doing this cause I have to check my box okay. to be able to go coach. You know, it's, I have to get my certification. I have to get my X. And this could be, you know, I don't know, uh, a safety standard for a tradesman. It could be a coaching thing. It could be strength and conditioning, right? There's always those people that are just doing it because they have to tick the box to be able to get out there on the field or be legal and do it. Uh, so there's a bell curve like everything. Um, and so it's just kind of the nature, the nature of the beast. But overall, we do have really positive receptions, at least in my experience, and people are eager to learn and better themselves. And in your delivery of the different programs to the coaches, 
obviously you have a background in both coaching, as you said, and coaching strength and conditioning, as well as playing and actually participating in the sport at a high level. So in your delivery of these programs, are you going through, say, different um, aspects of conditioning, different aspects of strength, different aspects of the technical and tactical aspects of the game and how to train them? Or is it all of the above? Or what would you find yourself coming back to again and again? Yeah, so it's all of the above just because of the diversity of the programs. So uh, for instance, you know, like our level one coach certification, which is, you know, the base certification to be out on the field overseeing kids, that's going to be mostly health and safety, kind of those coaching 101 kind of stuff. You know, don't be a jack wagon, be a positive leader, uh, role modeling, uh, anti-abuse stuff, you know, so that kind of material. We have uh, advanced technical courses, which are pretty popular. Uh, I work a lot in the tackle space. Um, so like that would be a very technical, heavy course on sports skill. And then recently, really since COVID, uh, we had launched what we called our prep for contact curriculum. And I think uh, through no, no benefit or foresight, all of a sudden everyone was locked in with COVID and body weights and crawls and rolling and tumbling was like the only thing people could do. And it got fairly popular. Uh, and that would be much more obviously like SNC themed as far as using these types of activities, exercises and stimulus to prepare athletes for the training demands that are, are to come. It's actually one of the things that I like most about my job is that there is this great diversity. Uh, you know, you sometimes you're consulting with an NFL team. Sometimes you're working with uh, a U10, you know, coach on anti-abuse and uh, treatment of concussion awareness, you know, heat and hydration strategies for the thing. It's always different. It's always challenging. Uh, sometimes it's very technical. You know, sometimes it's philosophical of values of coaching. Uh, that keeps at least me from from getting bored or burning out. And so I enjoy that. But yeah, we can be I can or personally, I can be all over the map. Might be a difficult question to ask you which you are enjoying delivering the most or which you enjoy delivering the most. So I might ask you, which are you enjoying to deliver the most at this present moment in time and why? Yeah. Uh, so for me. It is probably a, a pretty clear answer. Uh, you know, the, the tackle space and the, the tackle specific stuff is, is kind of always been my baby. It's always been where I've, you know, I've, I've really enjoyed it. So I was a defensive player in American football. Obviously, we never got to carry the ball. Our entire life was, you know, the, the, that side of the game. Uh, transferring to rugby it was great because you got to do both things. You got to carry the ball. And obviously, that was a ton of fun. But uh, you know, as a flanker, my, my job was obviously living in, in that contact and whether it was offensive continuity or whether it was defense, you know, you, you live there. Um, for those that aren't familiar, in about 2015, uh, the Seattle Seahawks had posted a video on their rugby-inspired tackling and some of the things they had learned from rugby. And so it became really popular over here. And then again, complete luck, uh, no talent. Uh, gosh, if only there was someone who had played and coached at a high level in both these sports. And at that time, I had been a collegiate football player. I had been an international U.S. Eagle rugby player. I had served as a strength and conditioning coach for a national championship uh, women's rugby team. And I had coached collegiate football. 
So like my career path just happened to bounce back and forth between these two sports and have, you know, this kind of knowledge. So uh, I, I always tell people, I w- won't say that I was good, but I became useful to a lot of people. <laughs> I could translate. I understood different things. I knew some of the differences. I knew what, you know, what was really common in rugby, but actually didn't carry over in football because of the differences in the games. Uh, I knew what was really good and, you know, people were like, oh, we want to learn this stuff. And I had some connections where it was like, well, you could learn it from your local club guy, you know, like, or you could learn it from, you know, world-class professional coaches. And so we were able to kind of do some things in that space. And I just really enjoy that, that aspect and that area of, of the games, the games that I work with, uh, even other games that I don't aren't involved with, but the tackling is a part of, it's just something that's always grabbed my attention. So that's kind of my baby. Uh, the other stuff does keep you fresh. It breaks things up. It, it allows you, you know, that kind of generalist to specialist idea to see things in new, unique manners, to work with new coaches, develop new ideas. But I'll probably always come back to tackle stuff. So what you're saying is you are the stereotypical linebacker slash flanker you just love tackling people you've always loved tackling people and you love teaching people how to tackle people better i i joke about this but if if you think about you know the collegiate sports system here in the united states you know from the time i was 18 years old and went to college and then till now the only thing i have ever done professionally is tackle someone or teach people to tackle someone. And <laughs> so for, that for, is whatever, for whatever that's worth, that's, that's been my life path. And that shows why you're so incredibly, you just have such incredible understanding of how to tackle effectively, how to improve in the nuanced areas of the tackle and how to identify a good tackle and a successful tackle from an unsuccessful one. Um, whilst also you also have a very broad kind of perspective of it you're not very in one box this is how we do it this is the only way we do it you do seem to understand that it's going to be different for everybody so I think in rugby now is my perspective obviously being from Ireland that's where I've learned and everybody when you're growing up in rugby is taught to tackle everybody the exact same so what are some of the common misconceptions that you see in the coaching of the tackle in rugby that probably need to change in the next few years? Yeah, so uh, I do think, to your point, that wide grasp. So obviously the tackle is could be seen as a technical aspect. Uh, the S&C background, you know, motor learning, skill acquisition, biomechanics, obviously that's helped shape my views. And then in my more advanced years in this job, being trained as a coach educator, and you get into queuing and drill design and all that kind of stuff, it, it all kind of comes together and shapes a, a different view. Uh, so I think one of the big things uh, that's going around right now is with the, you know, the new law changes and the, the red cards and the yellow cards, you know, there's sometimes a knee jerk reaction that just says, well, why don't we just go back to tackling low, right? Everyone just, just tackle low. Let's, let's avoid this situation. And I always look at tactically, you know, if we're being honest with ourselves, there is clearly a time and a place for both tackles, right? So I'm going to tackle a higher upper body. I'm going to target the ball. 
Uh, and I think we use, you know, like like political conversations, right? We jump to the 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 far ends of it. Oh, they're just so worried about the offload. Oh, if we tackle low, it's going to be all offloads. Sometimes there's like a much more mellow, simple answer that like if we're outnumbered, if we're in scramble defense, if we're struggling, like there is a time and a place to tie things up and try to slow it down just to reset the line, right? We're not looking at anything else other than tie up the ball, choke it up, don't go down early by three seconds for us to get back in order because we're in a complete scramble situation. There's times where we have the numeric advantage, we're putting pressure on the, the low chop tackle, you know, axe tackle, whatever you want to call it, is clearly the best option. Put the ball on the ground. Let's compete for it. Let's go. So I think it's a knee jerk to just say we should do one thing or the other. Mm-hmm. I think if you've watched the game, like truly watched the game, it's probably a fair statement to say that there is like three or four different tackle types that get made every game. And, you know, the reason is like the other guys playing for a reason, the other guys starting for a reason, like their job is to make your life miserable. They're probably not going to give you the clean thing that you want all the time. And even the best trained players, you know, the old, we're going to out execute them and that kind of thing. The best trained players with the best support systems, handpicked and given giant contracts, nobody has ever had a hundred percent game of ever, the tackle that we want to make all the time. So at some point, I think, uh, and this is a line I stole from, from Richie Gray, who, who's obviously a bit, been a big influence, is, is you have to train what does happen, not what you want to happen. There's, there's this point where if you've watched enough film, you've, you know, you've followed the game long enough, you go, okay, my guys are going to need to chop tackle and they're going to need to choke tackle. They're going to have to be able to go low and be able to go high. You know what I mean? We're going to have to be able to make some, some chase tackles when we don't have uh, body position to generate leg drive and we are either going to have to drag finish or we're going to roll finish or we're going to be in some compromised situation we're going to be in a situation where we have an opportunity for a you know that more front on knockback tackle we can get them on the back foot we can pile in turn ball over like and I have to be able to win that absolute power 1v1 situation so you know, there's a time for technique. There's a time for, for power and, and force and, and kind of go after it. There's a time to go high. There's time to go low. Now, that said, we want to make sure players are technically capable, especially from a safety standpoint in all of those situations. And then to me, the, the, big, the big area of growth is the, the recognition of, you know, in which situation might this be the best tackle? Now, if I make the non-best tackle, you know, and hopefully we we line up and we can, you know, pl- go again and we still, you know, live through without any major punishment on the scoreboard. But there's definitely a lot of great growth and learning and thought process around situational identification of, hey, I'm going to go low. Hey, I'm going to stay high and try to tie it up. Hey, I'm not in a position to leg drive. I'm probably going to have to, you know, snap the legs or execute some sort of roll or, Hey, I'm in this great position here. I can really grapple it and move it back and slow it down. And so, you know, just like we would talk about an attacker, you know, uh, run, pass, catch, or sorry, run, kick, pass. What's my best option. Sometimes defensively, there's situations like that, that we can identify and, and, and help us. So, I think that's kind of the big thing that, and again, just because of the new law changes where there's some knee jerk reactions where we go, 
we probably need to live somewhere in the middle with multiple tackles, you know, front side angle behind uh, multiple finishes. And then once we've taught those basics, really start to get into the identification decision-making and that'll lead to quote, great, you know, defensive players and great defensive systems. So do you believe currently that younger athletes, youth athletes in a rugby setting are exposed enough to the four different type of tackles that you're talking about in a more closed setting and taught the principles around them? Or do you think a lot of the time they're taught maybe one to two of those different tackles and then they're thrown into chaotic environments and expected to be able to perform all four of them without that exposure? So in my experience, again, this is going to be broad brushstroke, so Mm -hmm. nobody get offended or anything, you know, uh, you know, most people are going to select, you know, the tackles that they teach, right. And they're going to do a pretty good job with the technical side. I do think the decision-making training, you know, is, is probably where most coaches, uh, could, continue to do some development and and expanding. So to your point where we're really working hard on the technical model and we're talking about some, you know, some, Hey, we're, we're outnumbered here. We're numbered up here. We're, you know, on the front foot here, on the back foot here. And then we go into the game and like your point, it's complete chaos. And we're going, Whoa, Whoa, Whoa. So those middle ground uh, decision-making drills kind of, you know, those pressure situation, Uh, you know, small sided maybe so that we, you know, we're moving some of the stimulus and it's manageable, but also enough realism and enough kind of debrief situations where we can talk about, did we make the right decision? Hey, technique was great. Like, but what else could we have done there? I think that's uh, probably an area we could, we could show a little more growth that once players have, you know, like uh, a good enough technical model is always a super tricky term because like you said coaches will spend all year trying to get this technique to this ideal perfect level and we know that it's messy and we know that it's not going to be perfect and you know there's there's some place of diminishing returns where like if we're 90 percent there like and i'm taking another 10 minutes to beat the dead horse to try to get that the next two percent versus we could be doing some decision making drills and and putting it into uh, schematics, you know, system practice, you know, I think that's where that, that big room for growth is. Obviously there is a technical line of like, we don't judge a player to be safe in contact. And so we wouldn't, we're going to continue to work on some technical ideas, but once athletes can operate within those spaces, I think the decision-making is, is huge. I know I've talked a lot about, I think a lot of technical errors on game day fields or even practice fields for that matter are actually uh, cognitive errors, meaning the athlete is overwhelmed um, from a decision-making capacity, from a reading the game capacity. And you see a couple of things like, you know, an athlete may go into a situation and they're kind of unsure, we'll say of which tackle type they're going to use you know, the decision-making is slowed down. So then they get caught kind of in no man's land and, and they have a poor outcome. They, they miss the tackle because their body position is terrible or they process what's happening just a second late. And by time they initiate their skill, you know, they're, they're behind the eight ball and they end up, you know, losing the play. So sometimes technical errors aren't purely technical. It's 
if I didn't pull the trigger in time because I was frazzled by reading what's in front of me, you know, by time I tried to make the tackle, the guy was already on my outside edge and it was too late. Well, is that a technical error or is that a decision-making game reading error? And so I think that aspect uh, gets a lot of people. And so once they have those technical models, we need to make sure that they can do it in time with the game and doing it in time with the game has a huge cognitive aspect of reading, seeing, processing. And again, you know, like attack coach's entire job is to confuse you and make your life difficult. So your read is probably not going to be clean. Like the, you know, it shouldn't be easy if you're playing at a high level. And so you need those experience saying, okay, process, see, identify, pull the trigger and execute this skill. That time rush and that cognitive aspect, I think leads to quite a bit of the, uh, one on surface appears to be technical errors. Okay. For our Irish listeners, the translation of losing the play means you end up on your arse. Um, <laughs> or, or you missed it, or you've missed the tackle. Yeah. You're, you know, you you've given up a line break. Something bad has happened. You yeah. lost the moment. Yeah, exactly. But it sounds like from what you're saying there, we're we tend to skip a part of the spectrum from close to open in terms of teaching and the drills that we're missing out are not entirely closed working specifically on technique but they're not completely open as well and what we're expecting athletes to do is we're teaching the technical and the principles but then we're exposing them to too much chaos too early whereby they have not had that repeated exposure to a reduced amount of chaos or openness that they have become proficient enough in selecting the right tackle. So then when they get to that stage, they're like a deer in the headlights, as we say, and they can't select the right tackle because it hasn't been progressive. Yeah. I, a term I use quite a bit is stress inoculation. Yes. You know, and so I think sometimes you, you know, we have to find the right amount of stress. Uh, I'm, I won't say famous, but you know, one of the things I say quite often is that as a sport coach, uh, you know, you're, you're just a, a stress manager and then that comes from the S and C realm, but I think it holds true for the sport coaching aspect where you have one of those old radio dials and you're just cranking up the stress and the chaos and you're turning it down as, as needed. And you're, you know, you're, you're going up and down the ramps and you're trying to meet the athletes where they are in their ability levels. So sometimes we have to crank up the stress and chaos and see, you know, does the technique have stability? Will it hold, you know, with all this new stuff going on? And then for that decision-making aspect, you know, it's like, going from a 1v1 to a 3v2 situation, there's a whole lot more moving parts. Like, and so that is a big challenge and there's some stress inoculation and some comfort that can be built there, which is much easier than jumping to like, all right, we've done all the technical work. We've done our, our catch pass. We've done our, you know, our uh, go to ground and clear out work. We've done our tackle work. All right, like now we're gonna, you know, play our 15 versus 15. And you go, whoa, that's a big jump. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And so uh, I think, like you said, that middle ground, that stress inoculation and, and maybe more importantly, finding the right amount of stress, being that stress manager and saying, okay, you know, like this group, you know, they're, they're doing really well in this, you know, I don't know, four V four in the 15 meter channel. Let's open up the channel. Let's add an extra body. You know, let's do something to keep, keep building it up and start to allow that 
decision-making, information processing, seeing more of what's in front of them. And, you know, as we say, that skill stabilization, are they doing things in a manner that is, you know, when it comes to technique, like the, yes, there's some wiggle room, but there's also some general principles after a hundred years that we think are pretty well uh, aligned with positive outcomes. Like, mm-hmm. are they, are they managing to hit those KPIs within this dynamic framework? And when people hear this, sport coaches maybe who aren't familiar with the strength and conditioning terminology, they'll think, oh, progress, and that sounds really complicated. But progressing a drill can be really, really remedial, really basic. And something that springs to mind for me is, and I have seen you sharing a bit about it in the last few weeks, are in rugby, bag drills are very, very common. But I remember when I was younger, we would hit the bags and we would hit the bags coming on to us and we would hit the bags when they're static and then we'd move from the bag to tackling a person who doesn't want to be tackled i've seen you sharing recently how beneficial it can be to have a dynamic bag drill where the carrier of the bag is simply just moving their feet or trying albeit pretty not too difficultly or not too hard to not get tackled but they're at least a moving target so the person that are the tackler is having to read from their feet where they're going and then time their tackle and still execute the key principles or the KPIs that you just talked about. So that is progressing to a more open environment, even though people wouldn't think it is, I suppose. And it's yeah, simple I, things like that, that that you should be doing at the start, really, isn't it? Yeah, you're, you're spot on. Like I said, it, it doesn't have to be overly complicated. Is it progressively more challenging? And do those challenges kind of abide by some of the base principles, right? Like, are they, is the opponent more evasive? Okay, right. Like that's one of the key things, right? Every attack coach will talk about wiggle, you know, getting to the edge, winning. Okay, well, if that's what you expect your opponent to do, we need to start layering that into the drill. To your point on the bag stuff, like if we want to reduce collision load on the player for health and safety or freshness reasons, great. That doesn't mean the drill has to be what we would call sterile. Like there can still be some dynamics, some movement. And again, we know that ball carriers are going to change their line. They're going to wiggle. They're going to try to get. So let's, let's do that. You know, let's, let's make the bag drill. Again, the purpose of the bag drill is to reduce collision load, not to reduce realism. And so can we find some middle ground in that aspect or the same thing? Like, we may do a player to player drill, uh, you know, and I was actually just saying this the other day to someone where I want to keep collision and force where it's at, but I want to increase the speed and evasion. You know, do you guys understand that? Do, we, do you think you can do that? All right, let, let's have a crack at it. So we were trying to, you know, manage again the collision load, but still have this dynamic movement aspect of athleticism and like, uh, as we would say, winning the space, you know, can I get in front of you as you try to get away from me? Like, can we do that, but keep collision where it's at? You know, I don't need the collision force to go up. I just want speed and evasion to go up. So you find some unique ways and, you know, you, you experiment, you go up and down and back and forth. And the other thing that I always say is we're trying to always paint the complete picture. And often in training, we are making some constraints that are removing something like, Hey, if I'm using a bag, you know, 
there's a giant piece of foam between us. Like you're not getting quite as deep on the tackle. It, it tends to be much more difficult to really get those clamps in and fully control another human being. You know, we try our best, but like, you can't ignore this giant thing there. Like, okay, well, we're doing that so we can have our, our power, our big shots, you know, get our power coordination, maybe some of our timing down. We're going to do that with a shield, but I am going to want some player to player control work later where we're getting really good at controlling another human being. And if we're doing, like you said, straight line stuff, I know that I have to paint that dynamic change of direction picture somewhere else in the practice. And so not every drill has to be a perfect, you know, representation of the competition environment. But when I look at my drill package, like, am I painting the full picture? Are they seeing the major challenges to a variety of drills? And hopefully those drills are good enough, right? That we feel like there's actually some transfer because there is some stress and skill inoculation to what they'll ultimately face on the weekend. And we have to hold at the heart of that, that the key is teaching and learning. And that's probably what's missed out. It's we'll just throw them into chaos and hope that they figure out where they're going to go with it or figure out what we want them to figure out. And that doesn't happen. So obviously we've got to continually re-emphasize and bring athletes back to the key principles of, of the tackle, as you talked about the KPIs. And we've got to, well, we don't have to, but a lot of the time it is useful to cue the athlete to do so. So would you be able to explain to us what some of these KPIs that you're talking about that have developed over the 100 years might be in your own terminology? And I realize that's an incredibly general question. So if you want to classify your levels of tackle for us as well, while you do that, then that would be great too. Yeah, so generally speaking, so I use uh, the the Richie Gray framework, uh, which you know, I believe just came out in rugby maybe last year. Mm. Uh, I got introduced to Richie in 2016 that, you know, there's, we're going to track, prepare, connect, accelerate, finish. Like those are the five major, at, you know, areas in the tackle, right? Tracking is, am I winning the space? You know, can I, can I close the space and get to a position on the ball carrier who is trying to be evasive and get away from me sometimes, you know, some, every once in a while a forwards, you know, targeting your nine or your 10 and you're getting a good straight, you know, straight crash ball, but you know, we're going to prepare for, I know all about it. (laughs) Yeah. So generally speaking, I ask, can we win the space first? Can you win the space? Right. And we'd love to get in front instead of, you know, to the side uh, of the ball carrier, right. Preparation uh, is going to be really those body positions at the, at the moment of contact. So, as I transition from what are most often movement principles into the contact phase, we know there's some different body positions, right? That sprinting or running, you know, uh, chasing someone down, that, that's often characterized by high hips and a longer stride. And it doesn't take a genius to figure out we probably don't want to go into contact with that body position. So like at some point, we're going to try to, you know, base out our feet a little bit you know, we're probably going to start taking those shorter strides into contact because we want our feet in the ground, right? Newton's laws, like we have to be able to push against something to be able to generate force in the opposite direction. So we want those cleats in the ground. We're going to sink that, you know, our, their hips, our center of mass, you know, we're probably going to load the lower body. So we have that, you know, kind of triple flexion that starts to come and we're going to have to really address spine angle, right? So if I'm in sprint mechanics, then I got to get that spine, 
back down and out of vertical. Um, how horizontal our spine is going to go will be determined on tackle height. So obviously if I'm targeting the ball or uh, near peck or number, which would be a common, you know, football uh, aim point, right? My, you know, my, I'm going to come down to here. If I'm into the belly button, I'm, I'm here, right? And then if I'm going all the way down to the thigh, so like I have to be able to find those quality spinal angles. And I'm a huge, you know, believer in that, that kind of core spine iron rod aspect that as I transition, right, I need to be able to not only find my proper height, but is my spine, my posture in a really good position to transfer that power. So I have all this power from my lower body, my shoulders ultimately going to be my contact point. And that means that whole area between my shoulder and my lower body has to transfer that power. So when I come to balance, when I hit that preparation phase, if my spine is turned, twisted, you know, if I'm laterally flexed, if I'm arched, if I'm, you know, over uh, extended, right, I'm just going to leak all that power. So, uh, you know, we're big on can we hit those good positions off of movement? And that's kind of the preparation phase. Obviously, we want to win the connection, right? So power generation for the lower body. Uh, and some of it is the timing of the actual shot. You know, like when I pulled the trigger, was it timed well with the ball carrier? Uh, you know, from the SNC side, you'll obviously see some of that kind of power coordination. You know, like if I'm just a little bit off, you know, if my coordination isn't right, I'm not going to be a, a, as powerful. Anyone who's done a, a jump, a clean, a whatever it is, like when you nail it, uh, there's a feeling when when you're slightly off, like it's not as powerful. So we're, we're into that aspect. Uh, shoulder accuracy has um, always been a huge KPI for us. Uh, you know, talking about the new laws earlier, I think accuracy is only uh, exemplified. Like our player accuracy, shoulder accuracy has to be something that we are really, really training hard at. Um, most coaches will give their players a target, right? We're, you know, target the, you know, this area. We want to hit right at the, you know, the base of the pack or right underneath the ball or X, Y, Z. Uh, a challenging question that I, I pose at a lot of kind of the, some of the consults we do is how many of your players do you feel good about being able to put their shoulder where they want to in time and space? Taking out the coaching, the target, just from a physical standpoint, do you feel good about their ability to do that? Because if you think they lack some spatial awareness, some uh, movement control, like your coaching cue is meaningless if they lack the ability to put their shoulder where they want to. So I think that's a huge area that coaches really need to dig into and look at. And then they're going to have to train dynamic accuracy really, really heavily over the next couple of years. When a player changes direction, changes height, changes movement, when I'm moving, when they're moving, you know, like, can we hit our spots? Huge KPI. And then obviously, you know, how strong and fast are we with our arms? So everyone knows they're supposed to use their arms, right? But like, if my arms are slow, if my arms are weak, that, you know, that tackle gets broken pretty easily. Uh, acceleration as a KPI, you know, are we giving up our feet? Uh, drag finishes, and that's just, you know, we've all seen it, but we strike mm -hmm. and then, you know, the, the A4 uh, rubber pellets go flying everywhere as my toes slide across the turf and I kind of drag the opponent down. Like, oh, it drives me nuts. Like, we want to keep those cleats in the ground. We want to be able to generate leg drive um, at all times. Like, 
you know, we don't get overextended. You know, we, we, even if we're doing a lower thigh level tackle, I can, I should only extend as far as I can punch my knee forward and get my feet back up underneath me. Cause I always want the ability to take the next step. Okay. Most of the time it's just cause you don't know if you're going to need it. Like maybe he goes down on the first step, but if he doesn't, I want the ability to take the second step and I want the ability to take the third step. And I'm, I'm kind of reading it and feeling it where many will launch into that tackle and they're just kind of putting their chips on the table. Like, Oh, we're going to win the collision and he's going down. Uh Oh, he didn't. Well, now I'm just going to have to hang on for a while, you know, cause I'm not in position to generate power. So some huge things there on leg drive, acceleration feet, and then just the basics of keeping, keeping the cleats in the ground and then finish the tackle. You know, at some point we are going to have to break down that opponent. Um, I would love to win every collision and just go backwards. Like that would be awesome. Uh, again, if we watch the game enough, we know that's not the truth. So whether that is, you know, uh, clamping the knees, whether that's separating the legs on kind of a, you know, the old knee lift, knee pick style, uh, whether that's the upper body grapple aspect of uh, twisting, you know, bending, you know, kind of ruining your posture, rendering you weak. Like at some point I have to have ways to break you down and finish the tackle. Um, and then obviously a whole bunch of stuff, you know, we'd like to land on top. We'd like to, you know, be on the right side. We'd like to be in a position to get up quickly and, and, and challenge for the ball or to, you know, the blast through on that counter ruck. So how you finish is, is a huge aspect. And I, there's kind of two aspects. I think one, do the job first. How are you breaking down the, the opponent, right? So how is my grapple strength and, you know, am I targeting breaking down posture and or, you know, finding a knee, uh, some sort of leg separation aspect to get you down and then how am i landing working on the ground to be able to, to re-enter play so those would be the five big ones for me and then a couple of the things that um i think i see most often you know that are uh or maybe could be a little bit more worked on again uh the transition from the track to the prepare changing body positions and as we do that make sure spine is right accuracy and arm usage uh, on the connection and then uh, power coordination and timing, uh, giving up the feet too early, the ability to have leg drive if I need it, if I don't need it, great. And then do I actually have the tools to break you down or am I just so focused on winning the initial collision that like I get stuck in these stalemates and I don't know what to do. That was what I was just about to say or ask it because from coaching at a youth level, what you all often see is the athletes worry about the track prepare and then they make the contact contact and then they think, well, I've made contact tackle over contact over. So there's, there's a lack of an emphasis on the drive and the finish. So what I wanted to ask you was, have you, developed any specific ways or specific drills that you like to use to work specifically on the drive and the finish with the athletes is it going back to your grapple and your wrestling work is it actually just getting different um different grip strategies on the athlete at different positions because as you said it's not always going to be perfect when you go into the game you're going to have to grab them in different ways and i love that you said there are many different solutions to finish the tackle because you would be taught when you're younger, just wrap the legs 
that's that's the only way you can get them down the ground is wrap the legs. Definitely in Ireland anyway, that's what you're told. But you actually said you can wrap the legs, but the other thing you can do is you can separate the legs completely. Yeah, so uh, like the the hook and handle, the knee, knee pick, whatever you call it, it was a, a technique that my brother, who was a All-American rugby player, was actually phenomenal at and kind of probably stole from watching him, you know, but, but picking that near side knee, you know, so all of a sudden you get them on one leg. Well, they're really easy to take over when they're on one leg. So that knee pick uh, can be a super valuable tool, you know, or again, when we get the legs, you know, the idea that we're going to try to collapse those knees together, it's, it does work too. But the other thing is it's also not necessarily easy where sometimes you strike and you only get one leg. So are we working for the second leg? You know, I have my hands around the legs, but am I actually bringing them together? Well, why would we want to bring them together? Again, we can go back to some of that biomechanics. If I narrow the base of support, it's much easier to get them to topple over. So if I can get their knees together, their feet together, their ankles together, like they don't have power. If I strike a thigh, right, and I wrap your near leg, but you kind of have that kickstand out to the side with your far leg, you have this really big, strong break, uh, base. Like it's, <laughs> you're not going to quite go down. So to some of those finished things, again, with, with youth, as you were mentioning, you know, we'll often start in pre-engaged positions. And again, this is just a simple way to limit total collision load. Um, you know, so we may start in pre-engaged positions and we're going to do a finished battle where we would call it high force, no impact, right? There's no con connection. So there's no collision. Two players are engaged, but we're going to actively tell the ball carrier to stay on their feet as long as they can, right? And the tackler has to find a way to leg drive and grapple, right? Both are effective tools. We want to use them together, but they're going to start to drive their legs, drive their feet. They're going to start to you know, reach for hamstrings and knees and glutes, or if they're in and around their upper body, we're looking at, you know, how are we bending or laterally flexing the, the torso to, you know, to get them to go over and back and down. And so we're going to work these kind of post-contact fights, if you will, these uh, physical control games. Uh, and the kids often love them, right? Because it's fun. You know, you get a good partner, you're, you're going with your buddy, you know, and, and you can do them over a crash mat. You can do them just on the ground because they're kids. You can do them from the knees. But we're going to say, hey, you know, player A, you're the ball carrier. Your job is to fight to stay up as long as you can. Player B, your job is to, to get them down. And it is amazing, young youngsters, my, my son, even when we play in the backyard, it's the same way. Like they think like, well, if I'm just going to run into you, like in theory, you should just fall down. Like, you know, this, it looks like a cartoon <laughs> or a movie and you realize like in real life, it doesn't work. So that idea that, that the initial connection, that winning the collision should set you up to make the finish really easy. But I mean, like outside of the highlights, the collision isn't what actually takes them down. And so 90% of the time, you're going to have to follow up with some leg drive and some grapple. So again, start on the knees, go to standing. We start pre-engaged to, you know, to get really comfortable with that battle, that fight. And I, th I think it's much easier to learn and feel some tools. Hey, what did you do there? What worked? Hey, you see how you got this, his knee there? Hey, when you pushed your head into his side and really squeezed, you were able to bend him over sideways and he just toppled and went down pretty easy. Okay, great. Well, now you feel it. Now you understand what it's like in your own body. 
Now we're gonna do the same thing, but we're gonna do it from one foot away. So we're introducing a little bit of a little bit of pop, and now you're trying to find those same feels in a more dynamic nature. Well, now we go to a meter, right? Now we go to, okay, the ball carrier is allowed to change lines. He can step one way or the other. So stress inoculation, as we talked about, we just build it up. But that's, that's really where we start with it is we want guys, as we say, calm and comfortable in contact. So that player to player fight before we move them to collision. And then we'll, then we'll let them start doing again, one foot, one meter, then that one meter becomes uh, not a straight line, but they're allowed to change change lines. Then we go to two meters. You know, then as we build out, we start adding, you know, second defender, second attacker, and 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 all those sorts of situations. But I think players just need some exposure to that. And I hate to sound like that that old grumpy guy, right? But I do think right there seems to be a lack of free play uh, in today's society. I, I 100% believe there is a lack of rough and tumble play where the things we probably did as kids, you know, like someone is coming out on, you know, and saying like, stop doing that now. You know what I mean? Kids yeah. wrestling, fighting, uh, you know, jumping off rocks and swing sets and falling and tumbling and rolling and the, the full contact pickup games that we used to play in recess. There is no way a school is letting a bunch of kids go play you know what I mean? Full contact five on five, like <laughs> for recess. And that was just every day for us, mm-hmm. you know, a little more litigious society. Uh, so I don't think kids get exposed to that quite as much. Um, and, you know, I don't, we parents growing up, you know, st- keep your hands off your sibling, no wrestling in the house. Like they just don't get that as much. So I do think we need to recreate some of that just as a, a more general broad brushstroke. Uh, because kids don't seem to, to have that as much. And so they may not have some of the natural understanding or tools that the previous generations did just because we played differently and we were allowed to play differently. It's not the kid's fault, but like I said, we stopped most of that rough and tumble stuff now before the, those kids get a chance to do it um, unless it's in the sporting environment. And then what you see happen is youngsters show up to a sporting field and realistically the first time they're ever allowed in someone else's personal space is on the sporting field. And you got a guy like me or you saying like, do it with speed and power and enthusiasm. And he's like, Whoa, 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 like personal bubbles, hands to yourself. I didn't know we were allowed to, you know what I mean? Like I've just never been there. And so I joke around that a lot of times when you're first teaching a block, a tackle in football, you know, rock tackle in, in rugby, when you put, young kids in the initial positions there's a lot of giggling yeah and it's because they're like they're this isn't something they've done before and being in their personal spaces and having you know cheek to cheek and i'm in near their rear end and all this like it's funny to them because it's it's new it's slightly uncomfortable it's a little awkward and i that again that's part of that stress inoculation process that is probably even more meaningful and needed today than it was 20 years ago i've heard that's what i was like i've heard you talking about that before and it just seems so foreign to me i never even caught that because i never experienced that as a kid because as you said what we were exposed to was even before we went into organized sports it was run around pull and drag out of each other wrestle so and i i'm probably so far removed from coaching that age level 
that that just was a big shock to me that I heard that, that they're coming into a rugby practice or their first rugby training and they're reluctant to get involved in the rough and tumble because nowadays they're not used to it because just the way society is gone, I suppose. And what is funny about that is there seems to be a real emphasis and a push to move away and do less contact in youth training because they're worried about youth health and well-being and safety but we probably shouldn't be moving away from doing less it's probably more they need at the moment at least in a more controlled environment yeah so something that that i always say is you know like a tackle drill is not a tackle drill is not a tackle drill and so that can very much hold true with the contact as well like um and I know, so football here in the States, and I know rugby, like the new limit on contact minutes. Mm. And I totally understand minutes is the simplest way to operationalize these new rulings, right? It's just a very simple way operationally for us to do it. But if you think what two practices, right? Hey, we're going to do a five minute contact block. We're going to do a one-on-one tackle drill. Uh, I'm going to be very hypercritical of all the technique. There's four people in each line. So you have a one to three work to rest ratio. I'm queuing each and every rep. The total amount of contact you've had is X, right? Or we're going to go to a five minute contact drill and I'm going to say, all right, we're going forwards only eight verse eight um, in the 15 meter channel, no kicks. Right. And we're going to play a five minute block of just 16 guys. And I, I remember doing this as yeah. a player. Right, We used to call it mur- murder ball is what we used to call yep. it. 16 guys in the 15 meter channel. And it's all pick and goes and one off. And if you're lucky, you get an offload and your 16 forwards just smash each other for, for a five minute block. Well, how much contact did you have then? Right. So like a minute is not a minute is not a minute that, you know, uh, and then the drill is not a drill is not a drill. There's some great act drills and there's some drills that probably are well above the ability of the athlete or are just like gratuitous contact for contact's sake, right? The old toughness rah, kind of kind of stuff. So that's where the line gets a little tricky, right? Is that it's not all the same, but from an organizational standpoint, whether I'm world rugby or whether I'm, uh, you know, the local association here uh, overseeing football, it is the cleanest and easiest for them, right. To be able to put these recommendations out Mm. that said, I do think kids need way more rough and tumble play. That doesn't always have to be like the vision we see in our head, maybe of like these one-on-one, like run it straight collision challenge. You know what I mean? Like it Mm -hmm. doesn't always have to be that. And I think again, where some of that nuance comes in that, if a parent thinks contact training is the old run it straight challenge, like that's probably not something that they want to participate in. If a parent sees a coach starting with knee wrestling and working to standing wrestling, and then one foot bump into, into grapple to the ground, and then one meter, you know, uh, tackle drills, like, wow. Okay. I get it. You know what I mean? We're, we're building this up. So um, I know for, for USA football, you know, we, the same thing we do, we've talked a lot about that, but, you know, do youngsters need more contact minutes than the, 
the older kids as a manner of exposure and to allow for some more teaching. The awkward answer is, if this is well planned out minutes, absolutely. If this is a coach who doesn't know what he's doing, right, the stereotypical well, this is how I was coached. This is what we did when I played. Mm-hmm. And again, you're playing murder ball for 50, for your 15 minutes. Like, eh, well, you know, maybe, maybe yeah. there's, it's different there. So it's not an easy question when you really dig into it. Everyone has their knee jerk reaction. But again, I think we got to go, okay, you know, what do we need and what can we do outside of this? So if I'm running a youth practice, right. Can I do some crawling, some tumbling, maybe some push-pull grapple activities as part of the warm-up? Can I do it as part of uh, our athlete development period? You know, so after our warm-up, hey, Tuesday we're going to work on you know uh, acceleration and change of direction. Thursday we're going to do jumps and we're going to do some grappling. Like, okay, you know, how can I microdose this into the practice and and jump it around, jump it around, and then uh, again managing contact as well, like you know, what things can I do against bags and like in a more teaching mechanism? And then how am I really using my contact, contact minutes? Uh, I use the analogy teach versus test, where I'm trying to use my contact minutes as a test of where we're at in dynamic, chaotic environments as a way to Mm. give me information on what we might need to program more, what's going well, what's doing poorly. And then I can be more specific with my contact minutes the next week because I know I need to focus them on this area. Wasting contact minutes maybe on the things we're really good at already isn't the best idea. So there is quite a bit of coaching acumen to to managing those minutes well, and it 100% can be be done. Uh, But again, I just think kids need some rough and tumble stuff, even if it's not considered, quote, rugby contact or football contact as far as I'm on the clock teaching my skills or doing, you know, uh, scrimmage type, you know, teamwork, uh, we can still find ways to microdose that in. So then to move one step away from that, do you think it would be more beneficial if you were able to go in and educate people on all the specific extensive drills and games and like lower intensity contact prep work that can be done and then if the governing bodies even separated it just made it one more specific obviously minutes is the easiest way to do it but they said you can have this amount and this is our recommendation for extensive contact minutes and make that larger in a week and then this is your intensive contact minutes that you can do in a week because as you said one contact is not the same as another contact yeah so i think most bodies uh are doing something like this so i know if if i look at football and if you look at the rugby uh guidelines like there's distinction between bags you Mm -hmm. know and shields and and regular so my my question is always okay like well i have this pre-engaged drill activity that I like. It's high force, really high friction, power, strength, but there's no collision. Where, where does that fall? You know what I mean? And can that be to your mind, the extensive, you know, kind of, kind of work, right. Or 
hey, if we're a, if we're a foot apart, if we're a meter apart, you know what I mean? Like in some of these, you know, uh, modulated situations, does this does that have to be, con, you know, a full contact minute if I'm, you know, I'm I'm deliberately limiting collision. Right. I want post contact fight, whether it's ball carrier drive or whether it's tackler grapple and finish. I want to train those aspects. Uh but I'm going to do it with no collision. So it's not a full contact minute. Right. So like, how do we manipulate those things? I, yeah, I think there's some, some really good thought and growth that'll, that'll come out of that. Again, no one has this a hundred percent figured out. Everyone mm. is doing the, the best with what we have. And again, some of these recommendations I know are based off of, you know, just the operational side of things, you know, like, what are you going to do? You're going to hire somebody to come to your practice and tally each and every player, how, you know, how many reps, well, well, we did a drill, but he only got four reps. You know what I mean? So why does it count as, you know, four minutes if you only got four reps? Well, maybe you just ran a really bad drill and took too long correcting in between, like whose fault is that? Or, you know, like, are you really going to be able to track the total reps of every player on your team? Minutes is pretty, it just makes it a little cleaner and easier. So I, I get it. I do think that, you know, like you said, if you look at the changes over the past 10 years, like people have been open to conversations and changing, doesn't always happen as fast as you want, like, but we've shown growth and change. And so I think that'll continue to happen. And there will probably be clarification on, you know, those things like uh, we have a at USA football. This is probably seven years ago, we put out what we call our levels of contact definition, where we defined six levels of contact. And it wasn't necessarily revolutionary. It was people were doing it. We were just trying to create some more standardization that like, you know, there are varying levels of contact. So we have live contact. Uh, There's a a, a term here that's very popular called thud, which is going to be like run at speed until contact, but then everyone stays on their feet. So there's kind of that initial bump. Okay. Hey, I won the collision. You won the collision. You know, there, if you don't bring force, you will definitely lose. You know what I mean? Like, but we're going to stay on our feet. We're going to kind of play fast and high, and then we're going to stay off the ground. And so we're not really fighting to, you know, there's not that full fight to finish afterwards. You know, we talk about control to ground, which is a predetermined winner where we know the tackler is going to win the play. Like we're going to make our, I tell people we're going to make it look like sport, but we know the outcome. So like, I'm going to take the angle. I'm going to show some wiggle, but when you get hands on, you know what I mean? Like I'm going to go down and I'm going to let you complete the tackle. So like, we're just taking our foot off the gas. So you get things like that. You know what I mean? Uh, Obviously we're going versus bags. Like we're, you know, we're going versus shields or whatever you want to call it. Like, I'm running around, you know, with my, with my shield, my hand shield, and we're going fast and we're bumping, but we're reducing collision load. Like, okay, we let's all understand that there are some various levels and we can program our practice at various levels that, Hey, I want to go to ground, but I don't want a huge amount of grapple and fight. I don't want, I don't know, somebody hurting their knee. Like, so we're going to go control to ground today, make it look like sport. When he gets his shoulder on, put your, pull your foot off the gas right? We're going to work together to go down safely. Awesome. Great. Hey, we're going to, we're going to stay on our feet, but we're going to fight for those post-contact yards, thud tempo, stay up, stay high, you know, good one, two fight. And then we'll just let it kind of die out and then hit the deck and we'll go on, you know, set the ruck over the next one. 
things like that will continue to get clarified as far as like what counts as full contact minutes, what counts as, you know, I don't know, limited contact activities, what counts as non-contact activities. To your point, can there be extensive, you know, physical work versus intensive contact? Um, I'm excited to see where it'll go. Like I said, it's, it's not perfect now. People will get mad and they want it to change quicker, but like, there are really good people out there working on it and, and, and trying to trying to solve it. It just sometimes takes time. Absolutely. But if you were given the reins tomorrow morning, and obviously I've heard you speaking a lot about behavior change in the past and behavior change in the sport, as you just touched on with the last 10 years and the rule changes, if World Rugby came to you and said, Andy, we're going to allow you to implement one rule next year, to enhance the safety of the game for youth participation and youth athletes, what would you implement? That's a very hard question now, I know. So take your time. Wow. What rule for the kids? So this is something that I've I've always thought about in American football. And again, I'm just kind of spitballing, spitballing this. Now, kids sign up to play. Right. And I totally understand that. Like they don't want to just practice. And we have a lot of multi-sport kids and, you know, you're going from season to season to season. But I've often wondered if when you look at a lot of like the, you know, the volunteer local sport kind of organization, like, is that three week preseason sufficient? You know what I mean? And so like, I've always looked at, you know, how could we potentially extend the preseason, you know, they don't want a professional length, ridiculous preseason, but the twice a week, you know, four week pre, Hey, we've had eight practices now before we're going into our first scrimmage. And you're like, man, are some of these kids ready? You know what I mean? So like, I, I'd love to see some more off season, either extending the preseason a bit and having like some really nice progressions. Like, Hey, we're going to grapple. We're going to do prep for contact while we're introducing skills versus bags only then week two right so we have this nice four or five week per progression because i think coaches go to player to player contact really early mm-hmm. because they're they're playing that, next week that first game is hanging over their head so badly and so i'd love to see some of that um what you could do around there i've always loved the idea of like some off-season kind of developmental pieces as as people know Prep for Contact is a program that we do, you know, crawl, tumble, grapple, like getting ready for the physical work that's to come. I'd love to see, you know, like if you did that for, I don't know, once a week, twice a week for a month leading into camp, like would your first practice, you'd be able to get more work done. Would they be more accurate? Uh, those, those kind of things. Um, obviously, we've talked a lot about learning. Uh, the skills with youth, which is incredibly, incredibly difficult. I also look at really long layoffs for the advanced athletes and skill degradation, right? The idea that like, well, this, he's a really good player. They know how to tackle, but if I haven't done it in six weeks, like, what do you think my technical accuracy is just from rust? You know, like I know what to do. I'm capable of doing it, but you know, I don't know, take whatever exercise you want. If you haven't swung a golf club in six weeks, if you haven't attempted a power clean in six weeks, that first day back is normally pretty crap. And it's like, oh, we're not going to tackle for six, eight weeks for whatever reason. And then we're like, all right, but you're talented. So like, 
let's pick it back up. You know what I mean? And so how do we address those uh, skill degradation, kind of technical rust issues coming out of longer breaks and, and layoffs? Uh, those are the things that I'm, I'm really interested in and really love to do. But I think a bit of a longer runway for youth, whether it is, again, some non-official practice stuff where you could work on prep for contact and technique or finding a way to slightly lengthen the preseason, obviously while still making it fun and enjoyable because again, kids do want to play. Uh, those would be the areas I'd really address first because I think that's what causes the panic and a lot of the rush to full contact in youth sport. Okay. Shock, really, that the, the two S&C coaches are on a podcast and their answer is more training yeah. <laughs> and more and, teaching and coaching. And, and more progression. Yeah. Right? Like more, that's that's the big one is I think we just, people get pressured into rushing the progression. Yeah. And I, I understand where their head is at. And you know what I mean? Like we have to be ready for the game. If we haven't ever done it, we're not going to be ready for the game. But uh our stress inoculation jumps become very big. Yeah. And then we all know a kid can get ruined from a sport quite easily with a couple early bad experiences. Absolutely. Absolutely. Great point. Okay. We're going to finish on quick fire questions. The first mm. one is proudest achievement to date. Uh, people probably hate me for this, but uh, my kids, I'm a family guy. Um, I got out of coaching, uh, freely stated to everyone because of the lifestyle, you know, the long hours, the, the traveling, the film review, the scouting. I loved my coaching. I hated everything else. Like it wasn't on the field coaching. It just, and I come from a foster adoptive family of nine. So I always had a vision of the type of father I wanted to be. And I really knew that that coaching kind of that team level day to day was not going to allow me to have that lifestyle. Um, and so my kids, the life that I have with them, like, you know, I work from home. I'm, I'm able to take my kids to school. It's it's what I've always dreamed of. And so it's people will probably, you know, hate me for it. It's a little corny, but it, it really is who I am in my core. I absolutely think nobody's going to hate you for that, Andy. You're actually the second person. No, probably more, actually. But I remember distinctly Care said the exact same thing. I had the same answer for me. Um, next one is favorite athlete of all time. Oh, uh, none. One of my favorite lines of all times is I succeeded because I had no heroes. When we, I remember thinking very clearly as a 15 or 16 year old at a buddy's house, you know, we're all watching sports together, eating pizza, you know, being, being dudes. And they're like, just gassing up the, you know, the guy on TV that they're like, oh, he's so amazing. He's so incredible. And in the back of my head, I was thinking four years from now, I'm going to be playing against him. And like, like that's, that was my mindset. And I'm not saying it's right or it's wrong, but it's how, you know what I mean? Like when I saw great people, there was a little creep in the back of my head that wanted to crack, that wanted to know like if I could, if I was good, good enough. And so one of my favorite lines, I can't take credit for it, but I, I achieved because I had no heroes. I wanted to compete against them. And so uh, I'll, I'll go with that as kind of the, the fake tough guy quote. But yeah, I believe like there's that little bit of competitor in you that even when you come off second best, you you kind of want to know. 
that's deadly man that's a great quote and like it's not often often heard i've never heard that quote before it's fantastic but i will reframe it then because i know that you're a big rugby fan and you love watching all the international tests and i think i actually have an idea of who you're going to say but is there any rugby players in particular that you're enjoying watching at quite a lot at the moment oh gosh at the moment yeah uh whoo so um uh i haven't seen the full game but i thought uh last england tour courtney laws i thought was playing out of his skin um i I really thought he stepped up i remember watching the world cup uh and thinking south africa's 13 is really good like but all the fancy guys are everyone's talking about them. I think Lacanio Am is like just a, a phenomenal, a ridiculous, a ridiculous player. And I'm, I'm glad he's finally starting to get maybe some of the some of the publicity. I, I think that he uh that, that he's deserved. You know, um I, I uh let's see, you can't go wrong with somebody like uh you know Hooper, just kind of the the intensity, the tough, the uh the the grit. Um, uh, I always enjoyed that. My brothers played center. So I've always, you know, we've always watched quite a, quite a few of the, the centers. I think Henshaw has been playing, has been playing really well over the past couple of years. Uh, I, I enjoy watching him play. Um, let's see here. Who, uh, who else might, uh, I thought you were going to say Tom Curry because I remember watching, well, so, at the weekend, England and Australia were playing and Tom Curry was just so physical. He makes so many tackles and talk about earlier saying, oh, it's impossible to make 100 percent dominant tackles in a match. That guy goes pretty close to doing it. I'll, I'll say this, though. So during the World Cup, uh, I, I, I do like Curry. No, no knock. But Underhill was just. Oh, yeah a monster during, I mean, I know he's had some injury issues, but if you go back to the world cup and I know, you know, it's a while ago, there's more recent games, but like he was, he was dominating contact at an incredibly high level, just, just phenomenal. Um, the options. Yeah. So those are some guys, like I said, I, I, I love Underhill Curry. I think laws is playing well. Um, I love the, you know, Harris Henshaw. I love, Look, can you am? I love good defensive centers. I don't know. I'm total stereotype of like what my past has been. Uh, and then, you know, obviously, well, you know, you love a, you know, a super evasive guy, the high, highlight reel, but I don't know. I find myself falling in love with the good defensive center back row kind of guy making dominant tackles. That's who I am. Yeah. A hundred percent. At least you know who you are as well. Like, and you, you sound really passionate about it, talking about it. So the next question is, is there an artist you've been listening to a lot recently? Yeah. Uh, so uh, I'm a huge uh, White Buffalo fan. So white, the White Buffalo is a uh, singer-songwriter here out of California, uh, kind of dark, raspy, raspy voice. Um, came really popular when he did some songs for the sons of anarchy tv show and so i'm a huge uh white buffalo fan it probably doesn't sound like workout music but another random story 
the last song I listened to before I ran out on the field uh, for college and rugby was the last of the Mohicans theme song. I've always liked that kind of haunting musical side of thing that kind of can get almost get emotional. And so even to this day, I still train to a little more mellow, like deeper emotional stuff that kind of gets you like just, I don't know, in the heart a bit. And so uh, I'll be in my garage riding my my bike, just listening to the neighbors probably think I'm the weirdest dude in the world, some white, white Buffalo. Yeah. We've spoken about this on a podcast before. Hans Zimmer and Pavarotti are underrated workout music. I'm, like, I'm, I'm team Hans Zimmer all the way. Yeah. Quality. Okay. What's the biggest thing you've learned in the last 12 months? Is to stay patient with culture change so when you live something every day like whether it's strength and conditioning or for me kind of like in this skills tackle area it because you're doing it every day it's very easy to get a false sense of like what is quote normal and then like every once in a while like you'll see some stuff and you'll be like how are we still here or you know this is crazy and like instead of like not letting it get frustrated, it's, you know what I mean? It's like, you have to commit to the campaign to fighting along more, you know, like, and, and also because the fields can be so uh, people moving in and out, you know, pretty transient, like the thing you've been saying for three years is still probably brand new to 25% of the coaches because they're new to it. You know, they're coming in, uh, you know, maybe they're just coaching because their kids got involved or whatever it is. You're going to be saying the same message more often than you want. And you're sometimes you're going to be like desperate to go to the next level, the next cool thing. And just being like, this, it takes time when you're dealing with parents, with uh, volunteer coaches, with all this stuff, you know, be prepared for the campaign. Don't get frustrated. And culture change takes time. So then off the back of that, what would you tell your 18 year old self? Oh my gosh. <sighs> Probably that the, the world isn't as different as you think it is. And I think everyone hopefully can agree with this, but I remember when I got my driver's license at 16 and my mom and dad are giving me all this advice and I'm thinking, yeah, yeah, yeah life is different now. Well, you know, this isn't Vietnam, you know what I mean? Like it's different. Like I know the modern world, I'll be fine. And then like, you know, you, you're off at college and you're like, Oh shoot, like mom and dad were right. You know, and then a, a professor or, or, you know, somebody in your life gives you advice when you're in college and you're like, come on, man. Like that's 1970s stuff. Like it's different now. You don't have to deal with cell phones and computers. Like, yeah, that's crap. You know what I mean? Like it's the world is just different now. And then you turn 25 and you're like, Oh my God, my advisors were right. Like, and you keep repeating that same mistake because you've convinced yourself that the people older than you, like, Oh, you know, this is the eighties. This is a brand new millennia. Like you don't know what life is like. There, there's some pretty strong currents that have held strong for a real long time. And if I, if I wouldn't have kept waiting six or eight years to admit that they were right, because I was convincing myself that the world was so different now, 
you know what I mean? That, that I probably would have saved myself a lot of really silly, stupid mistakes. So like your parents, your teachers, your coaches, they're probably right on a lot more things that you are going to pass off because they're old and the world is different now. And it's really not that different. People are, people are generally people. That is a great message to end on. Andy, thanks a million. You're an absolute gent. There's tons of lessons in there for both strength and conditioning and rugby coaches alike. And I wish you all the best with the rest of the campaign, as you said. That's right. Really appreciate you having me on. Always great to chat. Like I said, I love it. And, and obviously uh, being involved in both both sports, it, it's just great to be able to connect with people from all over. It's one of the benefits, I, I think, of, of doing what I do is I'm, uh, I get to meet some really cool people from all over the world. So appreciate you having me. Thanks, man.